This summer we have been focusing on the topic of identity. I think we probably spent the first month just talking about who we are, and one of the phrases that I said at the beginning is we can't know God if we don't know ourselves, and conversely, we won't know ourselves if we don't know God. And um, I didn't know Jay was going to lead us in prayer this way this morning, but um, I'm grateful that he did because it reminded me of maybe the ways that we don't know each other, even here at Zion. We're kind of a big family, and it's hard to really get to know one another, and you're not going to know one another if all you do is sit in a pew on Sunday morning. Uh, But even moments like we just had, uh, moments of vulnerability from a few folks in the congregation sharing where they're at, sharing some of their struggles, their concerns, those are ways for us to know one another. And I think that's what church is about, right? It's a place, it's a community where we know and are known, love and are loved, serve and are served, celebrate and are celebrated. So, so uh, let's do that again, Jason, sometime. So uh, I hope you also, with it being summer, are getting out and enjoying God's good creation all around us. Uh, last Sunday, I preached the message that God has revealed in Scripture, and perhaps because of working on that message or preaching it a week ago, I found myself this last week being much more attuned to nature around me and the ways, uh, looking for ways that God was showing or revealing Himself uh, this past week. And I came across a devotional that Richard Rohr wrote just this last week where he actually uh, suggested, he talked about walking in beauty, and he suggested taking off your shoes and just going barefoot and notice the sensations. He said, look at what's around you, your surroundings, the beauty around you. Listen to whatever it is that you might hear. Be present to your surroundings. Appreciate the beauty. And then he said, in fact, he said it's sort of doing that, being still, being attentive to God's beauty around you in creation is a contemplative practice that puts your, your heart and your mind and your body in touch with God's own image, in, uh, God's image in creation, of which we are connected. And he, then he suggested that if you do that, and it's sort of a contemplative practice, he said you might even end that time by bowing in gratitude for your body, for all around you that is beautiful, and for the beauty that will continue to go with you everywhere that you go. It's a good practice. So God is revealed in his world. He is also revealed in his word, in scripture. And that is going to be our focus this morning, all the ways that God makes himself known. Creation reveals the natural knowledge of God, and creation and scripture reveals the what some would call the specific knowledge of God. So what does the Bible reveal about God? Before I say another word this morning, um, I want you to discover that for yourselves. I don't want to just tell you what the Bible says about who God is. I want you to discover it for yourselves. So you were given a handout this morning. Uh, not everyone may have one, not everyone needs one, but every group is going to need one. And I'm going to ask you once again to divide yourselves up into small groups, sit, around, sit with the people around you. And uh, we don't have the time to go through all of these passages. And so I'm going to ask you, let's, let's do it this way. Those of you, the groups that are gathered up in this corner of the church, you can be section one. The, I'll say the front half of the church here, you're section two. So you're reading those verses. 
uh, section three back there and section four in that corner. So as you gather in groups of six or eight or so, and I want you to read that verse out loud in your group. You don't have to read it together, but someone read the verse out loud. And then you're answering the question, what does this verse, what does this passage reveal about who God is? Simple enough? Okay. You'll only have four verses to do, so it won't take long to do it. So go ahead and gather with uh, some folks around you. And if you don't already know one another, introduce yourselves. Let's uh, come back together, even if you haven't gotten through all four of them. Hopefully you got uh, one or two or three of them, and I hope it wasn't too difficult either. I'm just curious, too, what you... So section one, what were some of the things that you... Let's say them out loud. What were some of the things that you discovered about God from these passages? Anyone? Relational? Okay. Consistent? Unchanging. Okay. Pardon? The only, God. the only God. Yeah, there's only one. Uh, section two, how about you? You guys had two, right? Yeah. Always with us. Everlasting. Everlasting, eternal. Trustworthy. Trustworthy. Protector. Protector. Always Good. In control. Always in control. Section three, what did you guys find? Perfect. He's perfect. He's perfect. Yeah. Faithful, majestic, just. Good words. Second four, what did you discover? Compassionate, good. Good to all. That was there. Yeah, the word Trinity wasn't mentioned, but something about the multiplicity of God, God's plural, the plurality of God. Yes. Yeah, good, good, Lionel. You caught that. Anything else? So, as I said, God is, um, God is revealed in His Word, in Scripture. He's made known in His Word. And we just we looked at 16 verses, just 16 verses in the Scripture, and discovered a lot of things about the nature of the character of God. The Bible attests, the Bible attests to itself that it is uniquely uh, God-breathed. It is man's best attempt to hear from God and to convey the experience of God. And I use the word man intentionally there because the Bible was written by about 40 different writers, all of them men with possibly one exception. And almost exclusively, the Bible has shaped our, especially for Western, Christian, for Western Christians, almost exclusively the Bible has shaped our knowledge, our understanding, our identity of who God is. Historically, covenanters have been known as people of the word. It's been important to us. It's been important to our formation. And we affirm that the Bible is the highest authority in all matters of life, doctrine, and conduct. And the Bible is actually, I should say this, the Bible is actually not a book. It's a library, if you will. It contains 66 books and uh, written roughly over a span of about 1,600 years. Uh, there are different types of writings in the Bible. There is history or narrative. There is um, poetry. There's prophecy. And there are letters that are written to individuals and to churches. The Bible is, I'm, I don't want to discourage you, the Bible is not an easy book to read. 
And it's an easy book also to misunderstand. And nevertheless, it is the Word of God, and we can expect to encounter God when we are in it, when we immerse ourselves in it. We are to know God, and we must then be students of Scripture, people of the Word. For the time that remains this morning, I'm going to focus on one particular passage from the Old Testament where God the Creator revealed Himself to Moses. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background as, as, uh, while you're turning there, you can find it. It's about page 88 in the Pew Bible. This, uh, this particular, there's a reason why I chose this passage for this morning. It was written by Moses to start with. And Moses is the writer of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses is writing out of his own experience of God, what God revealed to him, and he's, and he's writing under inspiration so that this, this revelation of God is not just for him, it's for Israel, it's for us, okay? And uh, a little bit of context about what was happening here. This is the second time that Moses went up Mount Sinai to receive the law the, on, the ta- on the tablets, the Ten Commandments. The first time round, he came down from the mountain, and there was all of Israel dancing around the golden calf. And Moses was so upset, he threw the tablets of stone on the ground, and they shattered into pieces. So he carved out two more tablets and went up under the mountain, hoping for a rewrite from God. And uh, prior to that, he has this conversation with God before going up, which sort of sets the stage. Moses says to God, and this is still back in chapter 33, Moses says, you've been saying that you know me by name and that I have found favor with you, but I feel like I don't really know you. I don't even know your name. It's a great mystery. Would you please reveal yourself to me, your glory? Who are you? And uh, God uh, says to Moses that he would reveal his glory to him, even his name. Sort of hard to know someone if you don't even know their name, right? So God uh, told Moses that he would reveal his glory and declare his name, but Moses was not to see God face to face. In fact, God says, Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock with my hand, and then after I've passed by, I'll remove my hand, and then you can see uh, me from the back. No one can see me face to face, he said. So that's, that's the context. So I'm reading chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Uh, just the thought of that. I mean, think about this. Moses at this point is, is roughly 80 years old, and he's climbing a mountain with two stone tablets. Of course, he lived to be 120, so, and never lost his strength. Verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And Moses responds in the only way that you can once you've experienced God. says, verse 8, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. This is God's Word. So this is an important, a really important passage 
uh, in Scripture. Keep in mind that the, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, were written by Jews for Jews. And this passage is seminal to their faith, to their understanding, their image, their identity of God. It ranks, I think it ranks right up there nearly at the top along with the Shema. You know, the Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Israelites were monotheists. They understood there was only one God. This passage is also, as I said, seminal to their understanding of God. This is where God reveals to Moses and to Israel, and and they will forever after this have a name for their God. It's hard to know someone if you don't know their name. Of course, just because you know their name doesn't necessarily mean that you know them either, right? So God repeats his name twice in the text, the Lord, the Lord. Now, if you're listening carefully, you might say, well, Lord is not a name. It's a title, right? It's not a name. And uh, it's really God's name, but uh, what's actually here in the text in the original Hebrew is God's name, but it is not spoken. It is a four-letter word. I I got to look. Yeah, God's name is a four-letter word that you're not supposed to speak. At least that was the tradition. God never said, don't speak my name. But the Israelites, their tradition was that God's name was to be revered. It was so holy. They were afraid of misusing it or abusing it. And so it wasn't spoken. And so to this day, when you learn Hebrew, when you read Hebrew, and you come to God's name, you don't actually say it. You don't even read it. You say the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew word for Lord. That's God's name right there in Hebrew. It's four letters. And Hebrew reads right to left, so don't read it backwards. Unless you're dyslexic, then you can read it backwards, but it reads right to left. And God's name has four letters. It's uh, the four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He, uh, or transliterated into English, Y-H-W-H. We don't even know how it's pronounced, really. I mean, there's some traditional uh, uh, guesses of, of how it's pronounced. It's because it wasn't spoken, because it wasn't given vowel pointing, we don't know exactly how it was pronounced. Um, traditionally... It was translated or said as Jehovah. Um, Probably better scholarship is Yahweh. Uh, That would be God's name. God's just, as you have a name, God's name. That's his name. And uh, this is also, by the way, is known as, there's a technical name for that. It's called the Tetragrammaton, which I guess theologians just like big words. So uh, tetragrammaton, that simply means four letters. <laughs> that's all it means. It's the four letters. The four-letter word of God's name uh, that's not spoken, generally has not been spoken. Um, but it's not just the literal name of God that is important. I, I'm cu- I won't ask, but I'm, I'm going to ask it rhetorically. I'm curious how many of you just now found out that God actually has a name, <laughs> and you didn't know that before. I didn't know that God had a name. It's like some of you that just call me pastor. (laughs) I have a name. (laughs) I remember when I graduated from seminary, my pastor said to me, he says, Rick, you can can now call me Walter. I said, I'm never going to call you Walter. You'll always be pastor. (laughs) So... So it's not just the the literal name of God that's important as much as what that name represents or what it conveys. I mean, think about, um, you, you think about what's attached to a name, often a reputation or an image or an idea. If I say the name of Billy Graham, 
you know, ideas, images, thoughts, impressions come to mind, right? Things that you know about the man. If I say Mother Teresa, there are things that will come to mind. If I, if I, say, um, if I say Bill Clinton, there will be things that come to mind. If I say Barack Obama, there will be things that come to mind. If I say Donald Trump, there will be things, right, things that come to your mind. So um, God reveals his name to Moses, but he also reveals to him his character, his nature. In other words, what is it that God is to be known for? And so God reveals to Moses the core of his being. And by the way, this is consistently reinforced like a, like a thread that runs all of through Scripture. It is embodied ultimately in God's Son, in Jesus the Christ. Listen again to uh, not just God's name, but what it is that God is to be known for, who he is, his character, his nature, the, 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 the ground of his being, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Isn't that good news? I mean, God's name is pure gospel. If this is what he wants to be known for, it is good news. The fear of the Lord, you know, Scripture says this also, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Scripture says, but fear is not the end goal. Love is. Perfect love casts out fear. God is a God of compassion and grace, of forgiveness and love. I'm curious, is that consistent with your idea, your perception your experience of God. It's funny the things that, that do shape um, our view of God. I'm reminded of what is considered the most famous sermon in American history. It's a sermon that bears, I'll say, no resemblance to the passage that I just read for you. It bears no resemblance to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or anything I think that Jesus preached or taught. I'm speaking of the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards. That sermon sparked the great revival of the 18th century. And the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you heard of it? It's the most famous sermon in American history. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to Edward's depiction of God in that sermon. And and think about it in contrast to what you just heard of God himself revealing about himself. The God who holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. And is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times so abominable in his eyes that the most hateful venomous serpent, as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Yeah, yikes. God is depicted like this sadistic juvenile who delights in torturing spiders and other bugs over the fire and despises human beings like venomous snakes. No wonder people were overcome in in Edward's congregation. By the way, I I read historically it was a rather contentious church. I wonder if he was just angry with them. (laughs) It wasn't God, it was him. Anyway, once the congregation was sufficiently traumatized, Jesus could now save them from this enraged God. It was a kind of good cop, bad cop scenario. God's anger is burning hot against you, so run to Jesus to be saved. Never mind that this same God of wrath is the one who sent Jesus into the world to save us because he loved us 
not because he was angry with us. We sang it in a song a few moments ago. God is with us. God is on our side. Not just our side as Christians. God is on the side of humanity. And he will find a way. God is looking for a way to bring people into his kingdom, to save people, not to shut them out. It is true that God sometimes is revealed in the Bible, because I know some of you are thinking this already. You're already running ahead of me. God is sometimes revealed in the Bible as a judge, a consuming fire, and sometimes even ordering in the Old Testament, ordering the wholesale slaughter of men and women, young and old, including flocks and cattle. And these are deeply troubling passages, and I'm not going to offer some simplistic answer to you this morning for them. It's not easy to reconcile those accounts, especially in light of the passage before us this morning, and in the brighter and clearer light of Christ, who forgave those who did him wrong, and who commanded us to love even our enemies. But even the passage before us this morning offers a cautionary right on the heels of telling Moses that he is a God of compassion and grace, of forgiveness and love, God adds this seeming disclaimer. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. God punishes wickedness and rebellion. But the verse just before it says that he, it's his nature to forgive wickedness and rebellion. Same words. God punishes wickedness and rebellion, but the verse just prior to it, he says he forgives wickedness and rebellion. So which is it? Does God forgive or does he punish? I'd like to say that it's both. And the tension, the the, the contradiction is resolved in Christ, which of course it ultimately is. But I also think that there's something else going on in this passage. Let me attempt to clarify. It is God's nature always to forgive, just as it is God's nature always to love. God can't help but love. God can't help but forgive. That is his nature. That's the core of his being. If God punished us every time we messed up, we would be living in constant fear and dread, looking over our shoulders, waiting for the hammer to come down on us, and that would be no way to live. That is the way some people live. That's a kind of immature religion, an immature view of God as well. We all go through it. I remember thinking that, looking over my shoulder. When's God going to get me? But this particular passage says that he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That seems unjust, doesn't it? Does that seem fair to you? Why should you be punished for something that your father did or your grandfather or even your great-grandfather? And why should your children or your great-grandchildren suffer because of something that you've done? I think there's a better way to understand the word punishment here, used in this context at least. Think of it as consequence. It doesn't probably look much different in the end, but... Typically, when we do something wrong or cause harm, it brings with it consequence, right? It may be guilt or shame, a broken relationship, some other difficulty, and often those consequences uh, feel like punishment in themselves, don't they? 
Now, God stands ready to forgive, to cleanse, to heal. But if we don't do business with God, that sin, that wickedness, that rebellion goes deep into our bones. It's unresolved. In fact, David in Psalm 51, he said this. David, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then was instrumental in the killing of her husband, Uriah, David, this godly man, never repented of that. In fact, he says, he says that his bones were crushed. He felt it in the depths of his being until finally he confessed that sin. And interestingly, there were still, God forgave him, but there were still consequences to him and to his children as a result of that sin. Not because God was punishing him, it was just the consequence. And I think that's part of what this is getting at. If we don't do business with God, that sin, that wickedness, that rebellion goes deep into our bones. It's unresolved. It gets passed on to our children and our grandchildren. We're talking about generational sins. We're talking about cycles of brokenness in families. It's why in the courses that are offered here at Zion, like the the Healing Journey that will be happening again this fall, and the Emotionally Healthy Relationship course, in that course we actually offer uh, an instrument that's called a genogram, where you can actually... You can actually plot the patterns in your family, the patterns of brokenness, patterns of broken relationships, patterns of broken relating, if you will. Generational sins that have been passed down, handed down. They don't have to destroy you, though. God's desire is to forgive and heal and offer you life, new life, abundant life, even eternal life. God is all about compassion and grace, forgiveness and love, healing and hope. God wants to give you life, not to extinguish it. Those generational things don't have to be your destiny. They don't have to destroy you. They don't have to destroy your children or your grandchildren. The point is do business with God. That your heart, your life is open to God. And if there are things that you need to turn from, and, and this is true, if there's anything to repent, to surrender, to turn around, to give up, to let go, to change your mind on, to break the cycle, it will not be the fear of God, but the love of God that drives you to Him. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. It's the best motivation. I do not believe that the fear of punishment can hold a candle to the love of God in turning our lives around and redirecting our paths or making us fully alive. He is a good, good Father. But don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself, please. I hope that this morning, I can't possibly relate to you everything that there is to know about the identity of God. Even that moment that Moses uh, experienced God wasn't all that there was for Moses to know of God. So I hope that this morning all we've done is maybe just whet your appetite a little bit more to want to know, to desire to know God. Uh, you know, maybe to be like Moses, to say, God, you know me by name. You, you know me completely before words on my tongue. You know it, but I don't know you that well. Show yourself to me. And God wants to. He's a God who's both hidden and revealed. But specifically, he's given us this to get to know him better. Um, The Pulse survey that we took several weeks ago here as a congregation, which, by the way, uh, in September, you're going to have an opportunity to hear that report, to see that report. Um, In that survey that we took that shows who we are, It showed that Zion has a high view of Scripture, but we're not in the Word. Interesting. 
We have a high view of Scripture, but most of us, for if we were honest, I'm assuming we were honest on that survey, most of us are not actually reading Scripture. Which means if you're not, it means all you're really getting is the little bit of teaspoonful that you're getting on Sunday morning. I'd rather have you discover for yourself who God is than rely on everything that I say. If we really want to know God, if we really want to know Christ, and that not be just words on a wall, but actually be our mission, then we're going to have to be, as we have been known historically, people of the Word. And let's not pass on to our children and grandchildren a neglect of God's Word, but find ways to read and share and discuss God's Word with each other, with our children, and with those who are hungry to know who God is. This God of infinite love. And how you read Scripture is important too. And I'll just end with this. As Westerners, we have mostly read the Bible for information rather than formation. For knowledge of God rather than knowing God. And there's a difference. We mistake our systematic theologies, our Bible knowledge, our dogma and ritual for a relationship with God. Read Scripture and engage in other disciplines and practices that will draw you into the great mystery and the being that is God Himself. That you may know God, that you may know yourself. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank You, we praise You. God, we are grateful for all the ways that you have revealed yourself, all the ways that you have made yourself known from the beauty of your creation all around us. God, awaken us, awaken our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our very bodies, God, to the splendor of you and your presence around us. And God, for your word, God, thank you for this written word. Thank you for this inspired, this God-breathed word. And God, help us to approach it not as some dead document, but as a living word that still speaks to us. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we have neglected your word and draw us to yourself even through it. God, open with your spirit, God, give us insight, give us understanding, give us a hunger for your word that we might know you more fully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.